You can turn to Acts 26 in your Bibles. I think I've been working on this sermon for maybe three or four weeks. It was actually going to be what I was going to preach on before I went over to Psalm 37. And then I think I looked a little bit at it last week whenever I was doing the kids' message. And this week I must have rewritten it four or five times. And am I finally content with it? Of course not. But uh, it is what it is. We are in the middle of a long story in Acts that actually kind of started back in Acts chapter 21, which is like January for us. And so the apt question is, why is this man here? What is Paul doing here? And perhaps even more than that, um, what is what in the world is Paul doing here of all places? How has his life brought him to this point? You ever have those questions like, not only did how did I get here to Woodland Friends Church, but how did I get here in life, generally speaking? I can tell you from about 2008 to 2013, those are five years I could have never predicted. I, I went from high school dating a gal that wasn't Christy to marrying Christy, pastoring a church I hardly knew existed back in 2008, sorry, and not even in the same denomination that I was studying to be a pastor in. How did I get here? I couldn't have planned that. I <laughs> uh, wasn't with Christy, wasn't at the Nazarene Church, hardly knew Woodland friends, let alone did I know they were Quaker, wouldn't expect to be pastoring in Woodland, let alone Cami, really. Didn't even expect to really be living here, unless something or someone kept me here. <laughs> Why is this man Paul here? Let's read Acts 25, 22 through 18, uh, 26, 18 together and find out. I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the Word of God. If you're able to stand, so please do. And then let's read these verses together. Then Agrippa said to Festus, oh, did my, right? okay. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all men present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish community has appealed to me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. Now I realize that he had not done anything deserving of death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write, for it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner and not to indicate the charges against him. Agrippa said to Paul, It is permitted for you to speak yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and began his defense. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that today I'm going to make a defense before you about everything I am accused of by the Jews, especially since you are an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All of the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand on trial 
for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In fact, I myself suppose it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority from that for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. I even pursued them to foreign cities since I was greatly enraged at them. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priest, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and of what I will reveal to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. I now send you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we look into this story and we see this conversion story yet again and we come into the proverbial courtroom yet again there are lots of reasons we could be thrown off show little interest not be open to what you're saying to us i pray that all those problems we might have might be set aside that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word that we would respond obediently accordingly that we would hear your voice clearly and that it would change our hearts as we just sang. Father, you have complete authority and say to do whatever it is you desire here. So we ask Holy Spirit to be speaking and not I. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're new or if you're visiting, I know we have a few visitors, or if you've forgotten, Let's rehash this long story one more time as to why Paul really is here. For Paul, it really begins two years prior to this time here. He was coming off his third missionary journey that Acts tells us about. He's sailing home, and in many ways his home church, you could have said at some point in time, was Antioch. But he's heading to Jerusalem. He feels called to Jerusalem. but. Just as sure as he felt called there, so those around him start prophetically hearing and sensing that danger awaits there in Jerusalem for him. A prophet even prophesies that he would be bound and chained like he is now. But Paul is certain nonetheless he's called. Sometimes people are called to suffer. And he gets to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, a big Jewish festival. It's a little... Later in the year than Passover, closer in the spring. So it's estimated that more Jews made it to Jerusalem for Pentecost in the better weather than Passover. Paul is greeted 
by Jerusalem church leaders, James, half-brother of Jesus among them. And they basically say, in Kevin's lame paraphrase of the Bible, hey, we're so glad you're, you're bringing Gentiles to faith, but some believe you're kind of anti-Jewish now. <laughs> so can you fulfill this Jewish vow with four other men and show them you're still obeying the law of the Jews? Yes, Paul, the Messiah is here, but the law is important. Paul in his writings will say things like, we are free from the law. So the Jewish leaders have kind of heard right. But Paul also says in his writings, he becomes like a Jew to win the Jews. Even so, in his freedom in Christ, Paul is seen around town in Jerusalem with an Ephesian, a Gentile. And while it may not upset the Jewish Christians, it upsets the Jewish Jews. So much so, they come up with this lie that he brought this Ephesian into the temple. Gentiles were absolutely not allowed into the temple. And their penalty, if a Gentile came into the restricted part of the temple, was death in the Old Covenant. Well, they, big surprise, don't have evidence, nor did they ever spot the Gentile. So, a riot instead ensues with Paul as their target, as if it was planned that way or something. He is saved by an army of Romans who break up the riot. The tribune who saves him allows him to have a say to his accusers, then to have a say before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high council, and a plot to kill Paul while he's in custody arises, and the conspirators let the Sanhedrin in on it. The tribune catches wind of this plot. He sends him to Caesarea Martima for safety. Now, Caesarea Martima is the Roman capital of Judea. There, Paul is heard before Governor Felix. Paul has been stating that the real reason he was the center of a riot is not that he instigated one, nor that he brought a Gentile into the temple, but really the real reason is Jesus. Jews do not like Jesus. Paul's persecutors believe Paul insists on blasphemy that a resurrected man who is God lives, rules, reigns, and forgives and welcomes both Jews and Gentiles into his presence. Felix, the governor that he's being heard under, like the tribune before him, believes Paul has done no wrong. But Felix also needs to tread softly and be in the good side of the Jews. So he keeps Paul in jail, never making a ruling. This persists for only two years. That's how long I feel like I've been in this episode of Acts. Anyways, I, I really wanted you to get a real feeling for it. No. After two years, another Roman governor comes in, Festus. Apparently they're only allowed to begin with the letter F. I don't know. The Sanhedrin, this time, a few different people than the two years prior. This time, they're the originators of Let's Murder Paul. The plot originates in their own council. And so they wanted Festus to send Paul back to Jerusalem, but they had intentions of murdering him on the way. We don't know if Festus knew or suspected, but Festus says, no, I'll hear this man myself. Since Felix never made a ruling, you can come up here to Caesarea Martima. Festus agrees with Felix. Paul's not at fault. But Festus is also like Felix, that he's not making a ruling for fear of messing up any peace that he might have with the Jewish leaders. So Paul's had about enough, so he's appealed to Caesar. 
Besides being Jewish, Paul is a Roman citizen and he's saying, you know what, if these Roman governors can't seem to make a decision about me while I just rot in jail, he's not necessarily rotting, he's being treated fairly well, but maybe a higher Roman court will make a decision about me. So this kind of put Festus in a bind because while he's happy that the case is out of his hands so he doesn't upset the Jewish leaders, but now he's got to explain to Caesar why this couldn't be settled. So how is he going to dig up that lie? Rome, obviously the world's empire at this point, over Judea. However, Judea is allowed a client Jewish king. And the king's name is Agrippa. And he's come to visit Festus. And Festus finds this helpful. And he basically says, hey, you're Jewish. You're Paul's leader. Can you figure this out? Agrippa is intrigued by the case. And the man, so we finally pick the story up, again asking, why is this man here? And we're going to unpack that question with Festus's reasons, Paul's reasons, and then Christ's reasons. So first we have Festus's reasons. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him, he replied. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice, that's his wife, no, actually his sister, and actually that confusion existed on that day too, came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in. Then Festus said, King Agrippa and all men present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish community has appealed to me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. Now, I realize that he had not done anything deserving of death. And the silent statement that should be said after these words is deafening. (laughs) Because think, in front of all of these social superiors and elites, he basically just said, I found no wrong in him. So you would think that would follow with, so I released him. But it doesn't. Instead, we continue in verse 25. But when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. So the crowd has to be wondering, so why then are you keeping him? Why is he going to Caesar if you found no fault in him? Verse 26, I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner and not to indicate the charges against him. It seems unreasonable to me too. I wonder if he should have to really go at all, but Paul's the one who pulled that plug and made that decision. It's really out of Festus's hands now. When a case is being sent um, to the emperor, and usually it's not going to Caesar directly, it's going to a ruling tribunal that he is likely put up as a buffer between he and and all the court cases he might hear. But a legal document was usually formally sent by the previous ruler who had heard that charge with their own personal thoughts and rulings. It's not unlike the letter, if you actually have read the passages before, that the first tribune, Lysias, who intervened on that riot two years previous in Jerusalem, he sent a letter when he sent Paul to Caesarea Martima, and there Lysias said he found no fault in Paul. Now, Festus is sending Paul to Caesar, so he better have his thoughts on the matter so far. So, 
he says he's glad that Paul is before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination is over, I may have something to write. Agrippa is thoroughly cultured in Rome, likely to the point of Jewish compromise. Nevertheless, he has the knowledge of of his religion like any Jew might have, so Agrippa might be in a better position to to ascertain the, the subtleties and the problems going on here and then be of help to Festus. That's his reason that Paul is here for Festus, to get more info. Why? Why must Paul go to Rome? Well, what's Paul's reasons for being here? How did he get here? When did Paul know or ever expect to be before Governor Festus and King Agrippa at Caesarea Martima or bound towards Rome? How in the world did he tick off Jewish fanatics of a stripe he was once a part of? How did he get here? I wonder if you ever have those questions. How did I land my job? Uh, How did I end up where I'm at in my relationship? How did I ever get out of that relationship? Who or what led me here? Should I even be here? Here's Paul's reasons as to why he's here, picking it up in Acts 26. Agrippa said to Paul, It is permitted for you to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand, which was a cultural custom in a public setting that kind of preceded their speech. And he began his defense. I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that today I am going to make a defense before you about everything I am accused of by the Jews, especially since you are an expert in all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So, two years prior to this passage here, and probably two years ago on Sunday, maybe not, but um, some of the Jewish leaders were before Felix, the previous governor, and they were represented by a Tortullus. And I explained then that usually defenses or legal arguments kind of began culturally with this praising the hearer. There, Tortullus laid it on very thick for Felix, who was actually a noted super lousy ruler. But Tortullus laid it on anyways. Well, Paul is likely engaging in that fact. It's an expected societal norm. But he's not lying. Agrippa is Jewish. And he will know or be able to grasp the subtleties underlying what has happened. Verse 4, he says, All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. They had previously known me for quite some time, and if they were willing to testify that, according to the strictest party of our religion, lived as a Pharisee. So Paul is actually setting the stage that he was really one of the same types who attacked him. One who is is zealous for the law. He was never seeking to challenge Judaism, which is kind of what he's on trial for now, according to his opponents, but rather he sought to defend it, to be righteous in it as far as Judaism understood righteousness. As Paul wrote to the Philippian church, he said that that letter, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, or you know, as a man, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. 
See, Paul was a persecutor like the people he's facing now. That's what he existed for, to be a righteous defender of the faith. And furthermore, he says, And now I stand on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The promise our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why is it considered incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? wonder if you hear this. Paul is saying this is common Jewish history, common Jewish belief. (laughs) Here's why I've been on trial for the last two years. The hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Uh, Paul's just not talking about one generation of thinking or theology. He's talking about from the beginning, commonly held generation to generation belief. In other words, why is he being locked up for it? It's like Paul was saying, I'm on trial because I said water is wet. (laughs) Uh, Verse 8, he mentions the fact, or he's, excuse me, a promise made by God to our fathers. Paul's talking about the Messiah. But then in verse 8, he does mention the fact that this Messiah is resurrected. That's, that's kind of the controversy, but it still had precedent in the Old Testament. So it's not an astonishing claim. Maybe it's a controversial one, but one that doesn't really merit his arrest, let alone his death. How old is this promise from God to their fathers? Some point all the way back to Genesis near the beginning of creation, before the formation of Israel itself, where it says there, I will put hostility, this is right after Adam and Eve fall, and God says to the serpent who tempted them, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So the serpent who tricked Eve, more broadly, tricked mankind in the wilderness. God is promising a Savior, a Redeemer, a seed, an offspring. One who would undo everything what Adam and Eve just did by giving in to the serpent. And in fact, when Eve has her first baby after the fall, Cain, she says in Genesis 4.1, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. And some wonder if underneath Eve's proclamation here is the wonder and the hope and the expectation that this must be the seed God promised. Sadly and ironically, it's Cain, a murderer. But Cain's brother Abel has blood that calls out from the ground. reminds us of a Savior. Then this promised seed motif develops. It becomes Noah who will, quote, be a comfort in their days. It will be Abraham who is called out from pagan, non-Yahweh worshippers. Isaac, the promised child of Abraham. Joseph, or Jacob, Joseph, and then down onto David. And then David's offspring, as the prophet Nathaniel says to him, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. Huh. A king who reigns forever sounds like someone who can't die. Hence, Paul is saying this is nothing new. This is nothing more than the promise our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve him night and day. King Agrippa, I am being accused by the Jews because of this hope. Why is it considered incredible 
by any of you that God raises the dead. Apart from the Messiah, whom many Jews were waiting for, the idea of resurrection was present in the Old Testament as well. Daniel 12.2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, some to shame and eternal contempt. So Paul is saying to King Agrippa, a self-proclaimed Jew, if not the best of practicing adherence now, at least somewhat familiar with the whole thing. He's saying, this is nothing new. It's like I'm putting my life in danger and going to die because we had a disagreement at Bible study. <laughs> to put it in contemporary... Now, some of you are like, I've been to Bible studies before. It can happen. <laughs> but Paul is saying, here's why I'm here. here. Here's why I'm on trial. The Messiah has come, and I actually believe it. But then Paul returns to the fact that he was once like his opponents, the persecutors persecuting him. He says, in fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. I actually did this in Jerusalem and I locked myself, I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priests. When they were put to death, I cast my vote, likely not literally here, Paul's just meaning he's, he's shown public support, he gave public approval, against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. So blaspheming would result in their execution by religious authorities. And so Paul is saying he's tried to coerce them to blaspheme. I even pursued them to foreign cities since I was greatly enraged at them. So... What Paul is likely doing here is a few things. First, he's about to show how unlikely that he, a fellow persecutor, would then do a 180 and tick off the persecutors. Just like he, Paul, once was. That is unless something drastic happened, which something drastic did happen. The second thing that Paul might be doing is this. He's implied a few things in his life as a persecutor. He's implied a few things. He said that such worshipers of Christ were, quote, put to death. Word for execution, condemned, murdered. And Paul just said his life as a persecutor of Christians in front of Governor Festus was the sort of thing that happened with authority from the chief priest. Which, the reason why the chief priest had to bring Pilate in on their actions and with Jesus, and the reasons they're having to bring the, the governor of Rome in is because they're only allowed to put people to death with Rome's permission. In other words, Paul is implicating his persecutors saying, this isn't the sort of stuff we do. We'll put people to death. We're breaking the law. That's kind of what Paul's doing. So this sort of life became Paul's reasons as to why he was here on earth. To cause death, destruction, Mayhem, separate families, destroy lives, all in the name of God. In the name of serving Yahweh. It's what his persecutors and accusers are doing now to Paul. And it's so easy to give different names to bad sins, right? Now for Paul, he was just a champion of his faith, not a ruthless murderer. What do you call yourself? What do I call myself? But it's just a better name for a bad problem. I'm not selfish and lazy. I'm just secure, cautious, and deliberate. <laughs> I don't doubt that God calls me to big things. I'm just practical and realistic when it comes to matters of faith. It's not that I don't believe in prayer. 
I really just believe God's got it all under control and He's going to do it as He planned anyway. Paul thought he was on God's side. Paul thought he was in the right. Paul thought he was doing what God called him to do. Until Christ confronted him. See, Christ has his reasons for Paul being here. Why is this man here? Christ knows. Christ commissioned him. We we carry on in verse 12, going to the end of the chapter. I was traveling to Damascus under these circumstances with authority and a commission from the chief priest. In other words, with this opposition towards Christ and his followers, this vendetta to lock them up, to make them blaspheme, King Agrippa, while on the road at midday... Now, hold on a second. I don't think I've mentioned this before. As we talked about Paul's conversion story a few times. Midday. Mediterranean. Desert Palestine. Hot sun. Only the zealous and desperate travel under the hot sun at midday. Let's you know a little bit more about Paul and his zealous hatred for Christians. We continue, he says, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those traveling with me. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Sharp sticks used to prod things like oxen. And if uh, oxen kicked in resistance, goads would just be used harder. So here's what God is saying to Paul. Who has his plans? Paul, who, who knows what he stands for, knows who he is, just knows what he's been on earth for. God is saying, I know you, Paul. You have your plans, your cause, your religious fervor. But I'm God, and I have my plans, and my will, and my purpose, and that is what will prevail, Paul. That is what will prevail, friends. Christ has his reasons as to why Paul's here, and Christ has his reasons as to why, why you are here. If you ever wonder, what am I here for? What am I even doing? God knows. God's got a plan. Are you on board or do you need to get on board? Paul continues, and then I said, who are you, Lord? He just answered his own question. And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Paul didn't see that one coming. It's probably why he's blind now. Verse 16, but get up. And stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Right? Here's the plan. To appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what I will reveal to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles. Fancy word for non-Jews. I now send you to them, Gentiles, non-Jews, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Now, if you go back to Acts 9, where Luke tells this story before, or if you go to Acts 22, where Paul told this story to the riotous, law-loving, zealous Jews at the temple who tried to kill him, the verses of 16 through 18 really aren't around. It's not that Paul didn't hear them in Acts 9, nor obviously is he lying or stretching the truth. It's Likely just that Luke felt no present reason in Acts 9 to include it. And here at Paul's defense to Agrippa, it seems relevant. Because he's both before Festus, who is a Gentile, and uh, this implicates him. 
And he's before Agrippa, who is the Jewish king, and should know the Messiah and the passages that speak about the Messiah's ministry to the Gentile. And through Christ, Paul is saying, this messianic age has dawned. And there are three things, or three initiatives in this commission, and then we'll be done, so you can wake up a little bit. First, Paul empowered or excuse me, God. Paul is empowered in God's will to open their eyes. There's a blindness that people have. Do you ever see this or know this? You probably can't if you're blind. I, I've said it this before. I have a boring testimony. I attended church from the womb, I'm sure, born into the church, raised in the church by the grace of God, never strayed too far. But what I do know is people I have met, for example... Some of you remember, I remember talking a lot to John Pitts. And you hear stories of conversion and they get this. They know what it's like to be blind before. And when coming to Christ, it's like they were given a pair of glasses to see the world. Realities that are certain and true and almost tangible that before were uncertain. And they were skeptically there at best, but certainly not solid. God makes things in life make sense. The second thing, playing into this first reality, eyes are open to reveal that one turns from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. The glasses people receive upon conversion is this. I feel like there's this evil drive in the world, but with God I see now that there, just as there is evil, People seem selfish, greedy, ill, bad motives. So there's also good. People seem to find freedom and they can become selfless and generous and genuinely want what's good for other people. And this is the second commission. Freedom from evil. Darkness to light. Instead of bondage to Satan and evil, power to be right before God and reflect God. That's what God's commission Paul to preach. So how are you set free? How are eyes brought from blindness to sight and from darkness to life? That's the third thing. By faith in me, says Christ to Paul, they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. Speaking of John Pitts, I remember him telling me that before he was saved, he knew something was wrong with him. (laughs) He just didn't know what. He would get... Books besides the Bible, self-help books, psychology books. What's wrong? What is it? I think people don't realize the problem is this, guilt. Sin is wrong. We are made, fashioned, our very existence is made to reflect God, His image, and sin separates us from that. What is the solution? It is forgiveness from Him. Forgiveness to know, yeah, I've done wrong. I share the guilt of the evil in this world, but God offers forgiveness to me through Christ. Paul literally had his hands bloody and guilty with the deaths of followers of Christ, and Christ showed up, forgave him, and commissioned him. Do you know you're forgiven today? So the question is, is why are you here? I I wonder... If like Festus, sometimes other people have their reasons for why you're here. Your parents wanted a child. Your spouse wanted to move. Your grown children 
moved here first. Your leaders and rulers in another state had some impact on your life decisions. I wonder if you're here because you got reasons just like Paul had reasons. You wanted to establish a new identity. You wanted away from all the crazies, but you didn't realize there were more crazies here. But they're your kind of crazy. Or maybe the reasons of others or because or became your reasons in your continuing on in the tradition, the family, the lineage, the identity here in Woodland. But what are Christ's reasons? You know, I have a feeling that some things never change, that in some way, shape, or form, what he has in mind for Paul, maybe he has in mind for you and me. What if we're still called by his power and with his power to open the eyes of the blind, to bring people out of the darkness and into the light, and to spread the good news of his forgiveness of sins? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we un- unpack and try to take off the layers of what's happening here, and it's easy to get lost in all the cultural context and all the problems, and not understanding this or that, but I pray that your Spirit and your power has revealed to us today that maybe other people have plans for our lives, maybe we have plans for our lives, but you have plans for our lives. And your will and your purpose will prevail. Thank you, though, that you are kind and generous and you invite us. Sometimes, maybe because we're knuckleheaded like Paul, you need to clothesline us first. And maybe we're stubborn. But I pray for open hearts, tender, soft hearts, to hear your word today. Father, to respond obediently to the truth. And Father, if there are people here that maybe haven't received you as Lord and Savior, I pray that in their hearts that they might share these, say these words. Father, I have sinned. I need the forgiveness of sins. I believe that Jesus has died on the cross for my sins. I believe that, like Paul believes, that Jesus is resurrected. I believe that the Holy Spirit who empowers Jesus for life also empowers me for righteous living. Help me, Lord Jesus, to live righteously before you. Help me to continue to open the eyes of the blind, to bring people from the power of Satan into the light, and to share the gospel of forgiveness. So, Father, I pray that we would take these truths with us through this next week and in the coming months and years, that we would follow you closely and continue to carry out your commission, what you call Paul for and what you call us for. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.